0: in no particular order except for the very first two of these records here are my top 10 favorite albums of all time the beach Boys' smile has always been has, for 30 years has been my number one that sounds number two astral weeks van morrison neil young's tonight's the night the birds notorious bird brothers Joni mitchell hijira blood on the tracks by dylan sly and the family stone there's a riot going on my bloody valentine loveless and slanted and enchanted To Discograffiti, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm your host, Dave Gebro. and if you're tuning in for the first time, ask yourself this. Do you think most modern discussions about music lack a certain fire and perspective? If the answer is yes, then welcome home. Please join our Facebook group. Discography, Soldiers of Sound. We're on Instagram and Twitter, too, but the Facebook group is home. Home of artists, writers, filmmakers, musicians, you name it. Lots of unbelievably talented sons of bitches in there. My recommendation, if you like what you hear, is to join the group. Then, while you're at it, join up on the rest of the platforms, too. Then, please... Rate the podcast five stars, along with a beautifully worded review, no matter how you feel, especially if you're on Apple, Spotify, or Podchaser. It'll help a lot. On whatever platform you do call home, you'll be privy to a never ending flow of ongoing bonus content, giveaways, free swag, and encouraging words of wisdom on how to never, ever. Give up on your rock and roll dreams of maintaining a Lester Bangs-like perspective deep into adulthood. And if you're like me, and enough's just never enough, then you just stepped in shit, my friends. Visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Our Patreon feed is the last word in deep dive music obsession. There are multiple tiers available at 5, 10, 20, 30, and $40 a month through which to gain entry to the psychedelically mind-melting music funhouse of Discograffiti's Patreon. Find the most expensive one that's right for you so we can keep this thing owned and operated by us and for us because corporate magazines still suck. In this Thursday's Patreon episode a batch of Bob bonus clips coming at you. That's Bob Nastanovich to you. All of it essential, just too off topic to keep in the main show. And it'll be available only on the lieutenant tier and above. Okay, back to the free shit. Don't forget, the link to our legendary playlist is in the show notes and also on our website at discograffiti.com. This is an invaluable resource if, like me, you just hate listening to shitty songs. Lastly, but not leastly, a heartfelt Discograffiti thanks goes out to Joe Cravino, Todd Zimmer, and my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, without whose invaluable help and or morale-boosting energy, I'd be 100% dead in the water. I can't thank you enough. I care too much about this show to be easy to deal with, so also, I'm sorry. Okay, back to business. First things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discograffiti is heavily researched and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We're not just covering albums, Uh uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, singles, and bootlegs. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between zero and five, which allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. In this episode of Discograffiti, we'll be turning our spray cans back on pavement. This is actually part two of an incredible six part series designed to play throughout the duration of their 2022 reunion tour. Part two takes place solely in the hallowed year of 1992. And if you're a pavement fan, you know exactly what that means. Slanted and Enchanted and Watery Domestic. But let's start with Slanted, shall we? Slanted is where it all comes together.
1: Where did you uh, put Torch of the Mystics by Sun City Girls? Or It's um, on there. It's just not What like about Akaraki by Senyawa?
0: I'm not even familiar with who that is. Who is that?
1: Um, it's a band called Senyawa, S E N Y A W A, and the album is called Akaraki, A C A R A K I. It was released in 2014. Is that really good, or are you just trying to trip me up? You can listen to it. i'm I'm sure you have music streaming
0: yeah but i mean you know whatever whatever method doesn't matter but um dude you'll
1: like it i don't know maybe you'll hate it i don't know i'm just saying and i'm not rank putting in my top 10 i'm just saying it's something you should listen to from the last 10 years if you want to be freaked out i do
0: want to be i constantly seems like jurg on the beach kind of guy you know I, I'm I'm all over it the second this is done. Is it true <laughs> uh, is it true that most that all of the songs on this objectively and inarguably classic album were made on a battered nylon string guitar lying around your apartment?
1: I didn't really kind of kn- know that. I would assume that they were all made on what m- is sort of called the pavement guitar, which is this um very cheap. I believe it costs under twenty dollars. So you would have to verify that. It's a um, Stratocaster ripoff, which were very common at the time, generally called a Mexican Stratocaster that were sort of Fender knockoffs that were being made very cheaply in Mexico. I don't know what they originally sold for, but Stephen bought his somewhere for, I believe, $15. And that guitar has been lying around everywhere where Stephen has been, including I think every live show he's ever played even to today i mean it's amazing that that guitar has survived in the possession of somebody who's quite careless with their possessions
0: (laughs) has he always been that way
1: i think up until the time he became a
0: dad uh i think there was uh, like two or three sessions to record slanted so it was about a week to get the first batch of tunes down and those were the rockers Uh, The more mellow tunes like here and in the mouth of desert were done a couple weeks later, which is after Christmas, 1991. And Gary's production is pretty much Gary's in the garage behind the drum set, where he goes over to the tape machine, which is in the laundry room of his house. He runs into the garage where the, where the guys were play and then run back out and stop the tape machine. Right.
1: Yeah. I observed that during the um, recording of, um, Watery Domestic, that same process. And I think one significant thing you need to know about Sand and Shannon was Gary's board or studio was actually meant to be a 16-track recording studio, which was very common and affordable at the time. Mm-hmm. And he'd had it for many years, and one of the tracks was broken. So this is actually recorded on a you know viable 15-track recording machine, and that was obviously more than enough tracks. I mean, yeah. Obviously, Gary, not only with his recording, but his drumming was extremely vital to this album um, and made a lot of the songs. Um,
0: So, yeah, I'm curious about your stance on that, because, you know, your take on it when Gary left is, is there even a reason for me to be in this band now, right? Well,
1: yeah, sure, because the only reason I was in the band in the first place was because it's an insurance policy for Gary's alcoholism.
0: So everyone I know, and by the way, this is no reflection on Steve West. It's just they are different styles of drumming. But, you know, it's a very interesting problem in the band because you have this guy obviously is not fitting. He obviously doesn't belong in there, and yet I can say with total certainty that it's, as far as rock and roll drumming goes, it's it's up there with the greats. I mean, I would put it up there with Keith Moon.
1: Well, I mean, that's really, you know, and then I'm sure a lot of Gary's heroes, which only, which I'm incapable of naming because I, you know, he's 15 years older than me and I, we didn't really listen to any of the same music or I didn't listen to any of the music that sort of changed his life, um, when he was a teenager or in his twenties. Um, you know, Gary had been in bands for over 25 years at this point, and he was kind of addicted to drumming, um, and recording music. So, um, you know, and he's, you know, very gifted and very talented. Um, you know, of course it was difficult to be in a band with him, you know, as not only his tour manager but somebody who became kind of like his attendant and best friend and in the band i mean i was his first man at his wedding i sort of felt the need on several occasions to check his pulse Mm -hmm. um which was quite stressful for somebody you know doing something they'd never done before you know quite a wild adventure and you're worried about you know one of your bandmates dying um on a frequent basis um
0: I remember the night when I saw you guys at the Avalon, he unleashed a bunch of lobsters into the crowd.
1: Yeah, that kind of behavior. I mean, that was pretty extreme, but and I thought that it was um, politically incorrect as a animal lover. Um, sure. But you're not going to stop him. I mean, like, you know, I could sit back there and explain with Eyeball how he thought it was a really bad idea, but that would only spur him on and make him more likely to do it. Um, right. I mean it would have been hypocritical on my part because i eat shellfish <laughs> okay. uh, um i still think it's kind of a disgraceful way for a live lobster to go but as far as i know i think there's three or four of them
0: i and know in the were- lo- i know in the lobster community uh <laughs> they consider it an honor to have been massacred during that show it's kind of known as the lobster altamont I
1: mean, obviously, they're going to the hands of, um, in many cases, experienced lobster folk in the Boston audience. So, right, exactly. I would not have known if what happened to any of those lobsters, obviously. (laughs) I mean, he did a lot of absurd things, and that was sort of top 10 for me. Um, It's interesting that you saw that. but he was, was you know, yeah, that, that was, was a- sort of Gary's um, significance to the band. Not only was he completely essential artistically as a drummer and as a studio guy and willing, but, you know, his parents sort of looked after the band. We'd practice in his parents' house quite often. He was raised in a Marinette, New York, and, 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 you know, eventually moved to Stockton well before Pavement started um but you know
0: when i think about those tiny moments like the at the end of every line of summer babe the ticket on the uh on the hi-hat the trip the triples and then
1: uh that's amazing he was just amazing so when he was on i had the easiest job in the history of rock and roll but you know that was sort of unpredictable yeah i mean i remember as his tour manager you know back then when you'd go into clubs you know the the schedule if there's two three four bands playing would be you know, there'd be like set, set times with 10 to 15 minutes between bands, but you and I know the way it really works. So if the band, if the headlining band was meant to go on 1130, that usually meant they were going on at 1230 because of right. this delay, that delay. So I'd have to explain to these promoter people at these clubs when I turned up that like it says here that, you know, pavement's supposed to play at 1130. I mean, do you want me to tell you the difference between my drummer at eleven thirty or one. Um, and so, you know, you had to roll with the punches. Um, but at least I had the opportunity to say, I need this, to get this guy on stage as close to time as possible <laughs> because you know, the band that people were paying six or $8 to go see, they'd much rather see an incredibly interesting performer and drummer play than hear, some guy who at the time only really knew how to keep time in in sort of a four or four beat, Um, with, and, you know, at this point, I probably had played, you know, a few dozen live shows and, you know, everything for me on Santa and Shana was a baptism by fire. I mean, it was kind of yeah. scary to play at Reading Festival in front of 10 or 20,000 people on the same day that Nirvana played that their legendary Reading festival show in 92 um i think we played for like 35 minutes and i mean it was it was pretty terrifying for me i mean (laughs) same with the opening for my buddy valentine thing i mean you you personally saw the chaos that would ensue at the avalon show but that was pavement on their own terms um so it was difficult when we sort of
0: amazing you guys sounded so good whatever kind of craziness was happening behind the scenes with gary or you know the uh you know the insanity that you guys may have felt at the time uh you know uh, m- maybe not insanity but you know the uh the pressure of expectation um you know it didn't come across it, f- it just felt like you guys were riding high having a blast i remember smiles all around well, uh, one
1: great thing about boston is usually you would go there and play there the night after you played New York, which would be a very, very tense high pressure um, thing for just about everybody in the band. Um, possible exception would be Scott. Um, you know, bigger deal for Gary because, you know, all of his friends would come down from Westchester County as well. So we'd usually get to Boston completely running on fumes and um, when you're that exhausted, at least at that age, then your nerves are shot. And, um, so we were completely dependent on the Boston audience who is very knowledgeable and cared a lot about to kind of carry us on our backs. And so your nerves are shot, but the crowds providing you with like kind of a lifeline of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, so for some reason, You know at four or five o'clock and you're like i can't believe that we have to get on a stage tonight and play when we actually would take the stage in boston whether it be at middle east or avalon or wherever we would play um there was the the audience made it easy in in a great way
0: yeah i remember i saw Fuck man, I saw uh, Fleming Lips at T T the Bears in December nineteen ninety one. That was a great show back when Ronald Jones was still in the band. Let's talk about this record. There's so much to talk about with regard to the songs on this. First of all, uh, the title one of the greatest album titles of all time. Objectively, is taken from the title of a cartoon that was made by uh, Dave Berman. Right?
1: Yeah, I mean you know at that point we had all gotten to be quite good friends, and I mean I was friends with him kind of from the start, but, you know, Silver Jews existed and, um, you know, amongst David, men, David's many skills, he was a brilliant cartoonist and I don't think he intentionally made the cartoon for any reason other than his own enjoyment. Um, and I actually wasn't part of the conversation when Stephen, you know, may or may not probably did ask him permission to use his cartoon title um, that I think that was stuck on our wall of our apartment um, as the album title, but um, that's how it all worked out. You know, it's definitely very Burman-esque.
0: The first three titles of your LPs are, uh, I remember reading somewhere, I don't know if it was uh, this particular journalist's take on things, but to go from Slanted and Enchanted, Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, uh, Wowie Zowie, they're all kind of rhymy, uh, but with... Uh, like uh, intentionally diminishing return shades of excitement was there was there ever a long-term plan on uh on titling the records in a rhyming kind of way
1: no i think you know you know basically just like every band tries to give their albums what they think are cool titles um and sometimes you hit and sometimes you miss i mean um personally the most difficult one to title would have been terror twilight um but in the end i think that's a good album title um it is you know and when you have a pretty limited body of work like we did there weren't too many things to name
0: so all right we're kicking off with summer babe winter version one of the great debut openers of all time i mean i love thinking about you know what are the greatest you know everyone in the in the uh, Discography graffiti soldiers of sound facebook group always talking about what are the greatest debut records of all time but then you know a great album opener on your debut record that's certainly important this is you don't get much better than this and oddly steven wanted it dropped from the track list and spiral saved it
1: apparently well you know it had already been released Yeah. I imagine that would have been the logic behind Steven's thinking there. Like that was probably sort of kind of more of a business decision on Scott's part, because we're going from Drag City, an intentionally small um, indie rock label to something that's a far bigger deal in Matador. And, you know, sort of the decision had been made and agreed upon by Pavement and Drag City that we were going to sort of for lack of a better verb, shop this record around. And, um, you know, it was kind of floating around the music industry and fanzines and people who cared, at least in that world, were kind of awaiting its release with bated breath. I mean, the first time I ever heard these songs as a collection in Hoboken with a couple of friends of mine that were in a band called Francis Scum. Their names were Eric Forst and Steve Healy. You know, at that time, we were like, okay, Pavement's like a really cool thing to be a part of and Pavement is kind of a fun way to go through living in New York City, Um, you know, with two separate identities as a bus driver and as like a dude that goes and sees bands. But after this, we heard this collection of songs, it was like, okay, now Pavement's actually now going to be something more real and right. um and start touring and somewhat unbelievably playing shows in different countries um and that reality sort of kind of made sense when i heard this collection of songs for the first time probably about in the spring or summer of 91 like four to six months after it was finished
0: you know i remember hearing it for the first time i remember just having like long conversations with my friends about it
1: you know? i mean it was pretty intense to be in the band
0: I'm sure I could only fucking imagine it was life changing to hear this stuff, because at that time, you know, I was engaged in only, nothing but creative pursuits. I mean, I went to film school. I was at the time writing a, a feature film called Jesus 2. I had a life of creativity ahead of me that I'm still engaged in. And this was endlessly inspiring to me and made it seem like people that were just like me were, you know, their dreams were coming to fruition. So it could happen. That's cool. Even with the, you know, the reticence and the slack and stuff like that, even that stuff was creeping in because I was boundlessly ambitious, but felt that sort of interior tugging on my shirt sleeve that there's got to be more to life than just, you know, striving after that thing, uh, attaining that thing and then wondering what next.
1: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I was a New York City bus driver, which was for most mothers, I'll to say that of people that graduated from the University of Virginia with, with an American government degree that had never really made anything of I appreciate her concern in having her son move to a city that was quite quite still quite dangerous at the time and um, and then telling her that I was in a band that was going to go on tour for the bulk of 1992 and having my mother say what do you mean you're you're She's like, you play in the band? And I'm very close to my mother. and um, Your dad, too, or just your mom? Yeah, my father passed away in 2011. It was one of my best, one of my favorite people of all time, and they were married for over 50 years, and incredibly great parents. And I also have a wonderful sister who's a couple years older. Um, My father, um, who saw more pavement performances probably than any other pavement parent, I um, was just so thrilled by it all. Um, my mother was a tougher sell. Really? Yeah. My father was like blown away. Like he would have loved to have been in that position. You know, he. Was your mom a was,
0: tougher sell on the music or you.
1: Play- no, no. She actually never really listened to payment. She saw pay, uh, many payment live shows, you know, kind of the rhythmics were more her vibe. Yeah. Several years after the fact, she would have been like, you know, power walking or something and kind of giving Pavement a real listen on her headphones for the first time and and um, realizing, and she's a Bob Dylan fan, realizing sort of the excellence of the music in her set of criteria and opinion making about music um, that she hadn't recognized when she was probably just apprehensive about these group of boys that had stayed in her house many times that she'd Mm -hmm. done the laundry for and all these things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, she's, she, in a great way, she's a warrior. So yeah, she was concerned. I mean, she loved Gary. I mean, we spoke about him last night. As a matter of fact, Gary was more comfortable with her age group than mine Mm -hmm. um, because he was, he knew a lot more of people and, you know, he's, he's right in between, my mother's age and my age. Um, And he would gravitate and adore his time with all of the pavement parents, all of them, you know, he was accepted differently by all of, all of them as well. Um, But I think that the Eibold's and the Nostanoviches really enjoyed him the most and appreciated him the most. And a lot of those shows during that era were, you know, packed to the gills. So, i remember seeing like my mother afterwards i don't know if i'd ever seen her as soaked in sweat
0: (laughs) she was probably in the pit the whole time
1: my Uh, father now he would have been in the pit many times he was in the pit at the kyber pass pub in philadelphia the first time we ever played there that's awesome Um, yeah i think that might have been his pavement debut i can't even he might have been at the first pavement gig in 1990 at court tavern in brunswick i like to
0: think of him stage diving
1: yeah no he would he would pop up everywhere i mean he has his favorite pavement songs of all time like his favorite one was Fillmore jive
0: interesting that's a really interesting choice he needed to sleep <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> he was a, he had insomnia so that one worked for him he Just worked hard <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Summer Babe, Trigger Cut, Wounded Kite at seventeen could be my favorite on the record. I love oh, great pavement
1: song. I mean, obviously yeah. we play it just about every night, and it's very unique and very sort of defining of this new style of pavement where we're not hiding anymore. I think that's the most significant thing about Slanted and Enchanted is that you know we're removing some of the shroud here. We're turning up the vocals. Um, we're presenting ourselves differently. We're presenting ourselves more as a real entity. We had a five-piece live band. Now Mark, and you know, was a very full-fledged part of the band. Oh, you know, although keep in mind, this particular recording was the three of them, but it was made with the band concept as a serious possibility.
0: Okay, So so it's not necessarily recorded with the idea that this is how it's going to be, but that hopefully it will be presented in that way. So in other words, when this was being recorded, was the idea that because at this point, it's still pavement as a concept, not quite a band. We, we,
1: we played seven or eight live shows. So I don't you know, I don't really know what the intent was, but I think that the tour, even though we probably played in total for a few hundred people, you know, might have changed the perspective on you know this might be played live that might have been part of the thinking but i think more significantly it was it was time to you know come out of their shell i'll speak yes. or th- three of them it just needed to be bolder the world didn't need more of the westing by musket and sexton era which right, is right right
0: i feel like you guys did just enough of that i mean it was like right spot on like the exact right amount before you uh created your first you know real major work you
1: know and there's a lot of zeitgeist involved with all of this one of the reasons why pavement was very successful was the timing of everything and sort of what was going on in their cultural background um in in music so you know good fortune is a massive part of, of yeah in fact a lot of stuff that you know as you know one of the things about rock and pop music is so much music that was absolutely brilliant and um, wasn't appreciated till well after the fact. Um, so But Pavement had the good fortune of not having to fall into that category and that was yeah. sort of by accident, it wasn't by intent, it was just part of our good fortune.
0: Yeah, you guys always seem to ride the fine line between like a well-kept secret and very successful. That's just coincidental.
1: Right. I mean, Slanted and Shannon is is very much, you know, I don't know what the exact dates of their Nirvana explosion are, but it was pretty much concurrent to this, but it was out beforehand. So we didn't have to worry about any of that crap that changed (sighs) the music industry. I mean, I'm not saying the music was crap, I'm saying the effect, the business no, I effect.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, it's, it's also very It's hard to separate it out because when I think back to that time, everybody I knew didn't just have Slanted and Enchanted, but were listening to it all the time. So to come to the realization years later that it was successful, but it was not like a diamond level success, uh, it just doesn't jibe with my experience. It, in my world, it was it was that successful. It was listenable, yeah, it was wherever I went, it was playing,
1: yeah, uh, and you know one thing you have to keep in mind about this album there is a discardable song on it. It would be jackal's false Grails at the Lonesome Arrow that's never been played live. It was sort of a departure from everything else on the record.
0: It seems and like sort of an outro.
1: Yeah, I'm just happy not to hear it. You know, like yeah, yeah. it's, I mean, like, you know, there isn't any completely perfect payment record, obviously.
0: No, this is perfect. I, I'm sorry, man. Not to me. I mean,
1: yeah. you know, I mean, you know, despite the fact Chesley's Little Wrist was named after my late girlfriend, Chesley, um, who Stephen was friends with. And so that has personal meaning to me. I mean, I think that probably musically that was, is not an essential to any pavement fan unless they just lump it in with all the, of the early noisy, weird things that could have been on any of the early records. And then Jackal's Falls Grows the Lonesome Era was a song that just doesn't sound Like a pavement song to me.
0: Yeah, it's you know it feels more like a demolition plot sort of interstitial thing.
1: I don't know really even what it feels like. It just said it didn't fit.
0: Let's talk about that that chord toward the beginning of In the Mouth of Desert. You know the chord I'm talking about? If one chord on a guitar could sum up the entire aesthetic concept of what Pavement does, it's this one chord. That one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. Just yeah, it's great. really summarizes seemingly. Nothing the, to do with it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's okay, just to be around it. Thank you. Uh, Man, no, no problem. Look, it's no. Fun no, no fun play, very fun to play live. No life singed her, Conduit for sale.
1: Zurich is stained. Very um, fall influence, very directly fall influence, kind of for sale.
0: Definitely one of my favorite songs on the record. I'm, I'm really just naming them because they're just, to me, they're perfect. I, I mean, I almost don't know what to say because these songs are such a part of my DNA. Um, it's.
1: Yeah, it's one of your favorite albums of all time. I don't think that, um, with your music listening experience, I can see how that makes sense that you would love this album.
0: But just the, I want to talk about moments that pop up. Okay, so sure. Let's talk about the, the like the very end of Fame Thrower. Da-na-na, da-na-na, you know, like moments like that would would probably cease to be a thing that Steve would, would utilize uh, in a songwriting way, I think, as he became more, maybe less intrigued by experimentalism and more by the craft of songwriting. But these moments uh, that are, you know, thrown through the record are so amazing and always feel endlessly surprising.
1: I think he's conscious of dynamic, um, yeah. both with live performances and albums. And, you know, every song on this album, is under four minutes. I think the average would sort of be in the neighborhood of 240. So, yeah, no, I think tempo-wise, things are all over the place. There's a consciousness of avoiding sameness. I mean, you know, you got to consider that Loretta Scars started being a song called LS2. Yeah. That was a different song, but it reminded him very is so, my
0: favorite on crooked rain
1: after he wrote it and then recorded it he realized that it was very reminiscent of loretta scars one yeah, so yeah.
0: most of these songs they feel like anthems to me i mean not like they're intentionally created that way um, no i mean there's
1: some great pavement songs on here i mean. That's all, you know.
0: No, this is a this is a major work, man. Here's my notes for it. One of my five favorite rock and roll albums of all time. Interview averse, Dylan esque in their predilection for secrecy and obfuscation. It's just about perfect. It creates a new space utilizing the great rock and roll sausage grinder. You take enough influences and grind them together, and inevitably you come up with something new. But then of course the challenge becomes to not repeat yourself because there's no way the work won't suffer as a result. And thus, the curse of possibly having released the greatest debut album of all time is set in motion for your band, Bob. A very hard five stars. And is it Perfume 5 or is it Perfume V? V, v. Perfume V, okay. This is a 30-year nope. question hanging in the balance. I appreciate sure.
1: it. Uh, I think it's Perfume Veins.
0: Perfume Veins?
1: Yeah, I've been to shorten to V. I love v is, it. Okay. V isn't seen victory.
0: What do you give this? I'm sorry. I figured I figured it would be a five.
1: I mean, the only fault, with the record, is that the sound aesthetic in terms of listening to it over the last ten years, the way it just ends up sounding in the long run is very early '90s, which is fine because that's exactly what the record was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I give it five but i understand how kids today when they heard it wouldn't be able to relate to it in terms of sound aesthetic so that's but you can't control that when you're making a record
0: but do you feel like a <coughs> you would benefit from a sonic redux or that be a separate question that kids today would would notwithstanding how it's produced would connect with the message
1: no, I just think it's very ninety-one, ninety-two sounding in the end, which is what, what it was always intended to. So it's just kind of pure zeitgeist for me. Spirit of the times, you know, it's no fault of the album. I'm speaking for people half my age experiencing or younger or even experiencing this record now as teenagers. They would be like, you know, the same way was if you listened to a band from 1978 that you loved when you were 15 and then listen to it now yeah. and it well, just it, sounded it sounded dated.
0: Well, you know what they did with the newest reissue of All Things Must Pass, the George Harrison record? They completely changed the character of the production to go from that specter epic, misty mountaintop thing to uh, reducing it so it actually sounds like an intimate thing, like he's singing to you. And i think they ruin it
1: uh Uh, it sounds like something that people would do when they have too much money to spend
0: yes exactly so five stars with a caveat is what you would rate it yeah i mean five stars and for the purposes of this program 1992 slanted off cuts so this is basically, uh, you know, what I'm referring to here is my first mine, the alternate mix of here. Nothing ever happens in my radio. Not really to uh, to rate them necessarily, but just to to mention them. The the one that I really think is the most uh, pertinent. Uh, The alternate mix of Here is terrific. The the guitars sound like fucking thunderclaps.
1: Well, I mean, we would actually play both versions of the song live, the soft and the hard. I think it was either denoted by Q or H on the set lists. And, you know, there's sometimes when you could use Here, the version that you're referring to now, to rock. And then there was other reasons to use it to have it match the dynamic of Here that's actually on Slated and Enchanted. But... As a collection of songs, the original songs that you mentioned that have nothing to do with the album, I think that they're all very cool. and They would have made it kind of a cool little EP in their own right, but they were... Right. The reason why they were on the cutting room floor is because the album is under 40 minutes long. You know, one edition of the album, I think it's Japanese, the B-sides, Sumi Jack and So Stark, you Skyscraper. And Sumi yeah. Jack is one of Eyebolt's favorites. So, I mean, those could have gone on there, I think, before several of the other songs that you mentioned but you know this could have been a double album but that would have been quite vain and really sort of rolling the dice so i think the fact that in the end the album was kept under 40 minutes and the songs that are on it were chosen if anything ended up being discarded readily discardable to me it would be jackal's false yeah
0: you don't like that huh
1: never did yeah, There's yeah. A, little, a lot of pavement songs that I never liked. Still That's interesting.
0: Mainly because I, I really don't even consider it a song as such. It's more yeah, of a... Yeah, it just
1: doesn't sound like anything. So I just, you know, yeah, yeah. I think the only reason it's on there was, um, I don't even know. I don't know, but I think, I mean, it's just, you know, back in the CD era. Yeah. Um, when you could you could just easily click a button to skip a song, mm-hmm. um, that, that song would be in that category on this record.
0: Well, uh, dynamically, it kind of clears the path for our singer to hit you in even more in an intense way.
1: But without it, our singer would still sound cool. I think we basically yeah. spent enough time talking about this awful song.
0: <laughs> Agreed. All right. So let's talk about that Trigger Cut single. This is actually recorded during the watery domestic sessions, and it's Sumi Jack and So Stark, You're a Skyscraper, both of which are classic pavement songs it's interesting to me that you say that sumi jack is a favorite of mark eibold i would have for sure thought that his pick would have been so stark because that deep rippling bass that curls your insides every time you hear it that really is the guiding force of that song
1: i think of that part which i'm sure he loves as a fan probably made him a little anxious about the idea of playing it live right right because it was might have been difficult for him to learn but i'm just speaking out of turn. I'm speaking for him again. It's just a five. It's an essential early pavement seven inch and oh, yeah, um, yeah, it's just great.
0: Uh, Steven, I read a lot of stuff recently about him in my research for this, him calling all this material that never made it to the canonical releases being referred to as Shadow album. Like a shadow... Yeah,
1: no, I've never heard that term. That would have been purely in his line of thinking as a
0: songwriter. Right. Well, this, I give five stars. I mean, Sumi Jack and So Stark, as good as anything on uh, on the album itself. It's easy five. Yeah, easy five. Recorded in April 1992, Watery Domestic, which I got to say is one of the all-time great EPs in history. This is the recording debut of you, is that correct? And Mark Eibold.
1: Oh, yes, but, you know... <laughs> I and mean, we we were just there and um, you know, we were in the band and we toured with the band the whole year. So we were it's the first time either of us ever went to Stockton. Um, you know, so we were just excited to be there and Stephen, I think, um, without putting too much thought into it, just decided to stick us on a couple of songs.
0: That's so all what are I- you what are you playing on on
1: this? Um, I actually play the rain stick on Greenlander, which is an outtake from this. And love then, that song, man. And then I did um on Texas Never Whispers, I am reading a poem that I wrote about or a little piece of writing that I wrote about the first twenty-four hours that I had spent in Stockton, just by, about my experience that first day in Stockton, and then I just kind of read it onto one of the vocal tracks and oh. it was mixed in very quietly. You can hear it very easily. That's interesting.
0: I've never noticed it. I'm going to go back and li- try to listen for that now.
1: Yeah, I mean, but there, you know, it was just um, kind of like a tip of the cap or an introduction to. I mean, they, you know, they could have mixed me higher, but they could have done that many times. But I think that I was very judiciously treated. And if anything, um, as I got into being more of a part of the recording process, that I was never given the shaft. In fact, I've always found it remarkable how much I'm used.
0: You also seem to be very well loved. Yeah. That's got to feel
1: good. Hard worker.
0: No, but seriously, every quote about you, there's no like, uh, what a prick. Yeah. <laughs> It's all a very glowing No, I'm
1: not. I mean, I refuse to be that. There's already 90, God knows how many pricks there are in the history of rock and roll. But even during this genre, there's a lot of pricks. So that will keep you from wanting to be anything like them.
0: It's true. It doesn't stop a lot of people. What
1: does that do? You know, you've got like a lot of the people that really love the band are completely essential to your experience and the fact that you're able to do it. They're providing you with this sort of incredible way to go through your 20s and early 30s and go to parts of the world that would have taken a lifetime to go to even if it's for a glimpse and you'd have to be a really insensitive person to not have strong feelings of affection and thanks towards hardcore pavement fans they were absolutely lovely and they still are very patient i mean i think that we would be one of those bands that for many years That were very inconsistent live. And as many people that saw a show that you really enjoyed, like the Avalon show, would have seen complete disasters. And I think I always sort of got the sense that the audience, regardless of their expectations of the start of the show, they're sort of in a unique position of rooting for the band. I don't remember seeing that many bands where I'd be rooting for the band. I saw a a lot of bands suck and disappoint, including some bands that I really love. I mean, i've actually seen you guys are like
0: a warts and all like for example if you're a bob dylan fan i don't know how familiar you you are with his work Uh,
1: i just know 10 songs
0: so he has made purposely bad records to try to shake off some of his more invasive fan base and if you love Bob Dylan. Paven but- never had to worry
1: about that. <laughs> I mean, he probably was just like a lot of famous people and his audience was too big for his comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Pavement never really yeah, yeah. had to deal with that. I mean, Pavement, right. our audience was kind of very easy to take in stride and very welcome. I mean, you know, there's a, there's always this impression in in certain aspects of people reacting to Pavement that we were failing in the post nevermind era as being referred to in this group of many bands as next nirvana type bands and but in reality when you get into the band itself we were always very comfortable with the growth of our audience. Um, mm-hmm. There, there weren't really any fails to us. There might have been fails to a lot of people that were looking to cash in their chips around us, but that was not felt by the band. It was always kind of a pretty normal, natural progression.
0: All us pavement fans uh, love you in a sort of in the sort of way that you would love family. It's like you you can get cool. dinner wrong. Um, hey, no it worries. Does. Happy
1: to have the love.
0: Yeah, please. Uh, feels good to give it. So Thank you. we got Mark and yourself coming on board with watery. We have sort of, sort of but sort just of. a little bit, just a tip of the cap. And the but Gary's out. This is the last uh, Gary
1: project. Yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't think he thought that he was going to be out. I think that, you know, one great thing about Payment's career is that In order for the band to continue to exist, Gary, who had done so much for the band, was so vital to the first several years of the band in every way, shape, and form that it was time for him to go. Mm -hmm. Um, The interesting thing about the way he went is he never would have been fired because he tested those waters so many
0: times.
1: (laughs) And if anybody, if it was a marriage, then Pavement, especially Scott and Steve, had many times to file for divorce against Gary. But at the end of the day, when the smoke cleared Gary, who was a bit overcome by paranoia and thought that he should be making more money than he was getting and thought that he should that health insurance should be provided for him, which God knows how much that would have cost. He, in the end, he quit. So that was a great gift to pavement who then had to reinvent themselves at a time that if we carried on with him in his mental and physical state, it would have been impossible for us to go on and continue to be everything we had been up until and and through watery domestic and touring in 92, and then actually getting back together in 93, and t- touring Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and then flying halfway across the world to Northern Europe, and then doing a couple of festivals in Scandinavia, and then he quit after that. Um, was and it, it a in-
0: blow up, or was it amicable at the t- at the time?
1: No, it was not amicable. It was basically him expressing his paranoia, and then him making all these demands it was also during a conversation in which Mark and myself wanted to have our the way we were paid sort of defined in a different way that played second fiddle to Gary's histrionics and eventually quitting the band. And then the next day, that happened all like late evening. The next day, he realized he'd made a mistake, and at the airport, flying home, tried to beg his way back in to Scott and Stephen. But he'd already burned his bridge. He'd already had fired himself for them, something that they probably lacked the tenacity or or maybe knew how to do because they appreciated Gary so much. But as soon as he quit, you know, very much just sort of in the full t- typical fashion of a young romance. Um, and one person breaks up and then changes their mind the next day and tries to restart their relationship, it just doesn't work. Does it? So this would be sort of kind of a simile to a situation like that.
0: And does everybody in the band feel as you do, generously and with objective remove, as far as how special his drumming was for the time, even though he was not the right fit?
1: I mean, if they don't, they're wrong.
0: <laughs> right, they are. You're, you're right. It was Even though he wasn't the right guy, he was the right guy. So the image of the rooster on the cover of Watery Domestic was created by defacing Ambergris, if that's how you pronounce it. Yeah.
1: Yep. some oh, record know. that you generally see for under ten dollars and record stores with too many pieces of vinyl them. and
0: that's that's another great thing is that the Watery Domestic EP cover is as good as the music inside.
1: There is Yeah, a- no, Stephen was really good at like um and really had fun sort of in kind of a pretty rapid fire way of aesthetic. You know, he're, he's somebody that had appreciates art and, um, al- and you know, in particular album art and sees sort of the magic in it. And then what he got it was you know I think one of the more enjoyable aspects of him being in a band was being able to design things like the slanted cover and the watery domestic cover, cover which were both made in the same ethic as sort of defacing previously released records.
0: That's like the same kind of idea as discography. Is like there's no sacred cows in music history. You just kind of tag everything. Yeah. This I, I feel like the level of songwriting here. It's like the debut, but I feel like uh the sophistication in the in the songwriting is very noticeable right away i mean the melodic inventiveness of texas never whispers immediately apparent
1: you know we played live we're a band that had garnered some confidence and another dose of payment and it's some people's like you mentioned some people's favorite ep and for their favorite payment songs and
0: yeah i mean there's not a single song on this that is not a classic it's a big i
1: know a lot of hardcore pavement fans obviously and and this is as essential as just about anything else so that's yeah. I mean, it's, it's a five i mean there's no doubt about it
0: it's a hard five it's a it's a big step up yet it's a an absolute continuation of the thread that was already kind of um introduced with slanted and you could definitely make a case that this is the best all-around pavement release
1: it's just a great pavement well, record
0: to me this is as good as music gets it doesn't get better than this it, o- it only gets it only remains as good as this and the fade yeah but i mean i often say
1: this to people like you know your ears for your own ears you know you could also say the same thing about in the in the air tonight by phil collins right now and that wouldn't have anything to do with the quality of your music taste
0: i love phil collins man uh, and and not ironically or at a distance there's certain songs on invisible touch that I can explain to you in great detail why I think they're really good.
1: Gary loved them. That was part of a very formidable part of his musical experience. He loved um, Peter Gabriel in particular.
0: We did a great episode with Kevin Whelan from The Rens on Peter Gabriel. That's his favorite. Uh, what Malcolm said was, Slanted and Enchanted was made with specific amps, and I couldn't get back to that. I didn't want to do that again. I couldn't do it anyway, because it was based around Gary's studio and the stuff that he had in the first place and Watery Domestic was the last thing we did there. I want to talk about a few outlier kinds of things that are going to get us into 1993. The first is the June 23rd, 1992 Peel Session, uh, which featured legitimately good new songs. It was not just some live throwaway non-event. Circus 1762, I want to mention I was in a three-piece band and there were no strings, only wind and skin torn flags light the burnt match and stick a flag on it was that improvised or it was was that song finished
1: uh, i think it was improvised name the four songs on this recording
0: circa 1762 kentucky cocktail secret knowledge of Backroads, and here
1: yeah um this is a <clears throat> session that happened at one of the bbc studios where the john peel sessions are made it would have been like done like mid early afternoon gary and i were rooming together and um gary refused to do it um it was sort of the first inkling that he gave that he was going to quit so it's just me playing the drum so i think whatever the game plan would have been the night before had to be somewhat revised because gary wasn't going to play it you know so yeah that's by Secret Knowledge of Backroads, which is sort of, you know, a song that's both a pavement song and a Silver Juice song had to be used because obviously I can play drums on that and it's a great song. And, what a, um,
0: what a, I mean, what a great song. It's
1: so Yeah, good. it's just a Berman, Malkinist classic sort of thing. And then the other ones were kind of thrown together. I mean, there's some some of the words I'm quite aware referred and a codified manner to actual things and then sort of the whole process was kind of very strange so just you know the sound aesthetic was something that we had never chosen i mean this thing was the studio was had to have cost gazillions of dollars and um so we would never reported in a situation like that so there's sort of an insurance policy on it, at least it not sounding awful it was always going to sound a different way because sure just because we never made anything in a studio like that
0: and you had a uh, few you guys had a bunch <clears throat> of sessions in here to me this is the best one you ever had
1: yeah. the, john peel like john peel was a big pavement fan and, and you know like a lot of things introduced us to england and i mean i don't recall ever spending any time speaking with him but i i know that he loved the band, and I remember playing his 75th birthday party for a crowd of a few hundred invitees um, in the same areas as to where all those sessions are recorded.
0: You know, when I listen to this, I think of an interview I read with Noel Gallagher at one point. Not not that Oasis are my favorite band or, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but they do have some great stuff. and. What he was addressing in this interview was the embarrassment of riches that he had available to him at the time, as far as his his creativity went. He was coming up with so many great songs that, you know, he would just fling them out on B-sides. And then years later, when he was struggling to be able to, you know, squeeze out just one good song, he would think back to that and think, man, did I take that for granted?
1: <laughs> That's something I can't relate to at all. What do you mean? i mean i just don't know what it's like to be a brilliant songwriter i mean i don't i don't know and i don't even really know if he is i mean i just i mean i can i think that a lot of um i would assume that a lot of artists um regardless of whether it's music or visual art or whatever have these incredible flurries of activities where things just make sense and they sort of get things right And i think that was sort of to note. um You know, the greatest period in the artwork of many, many people, whether they be actors, dancers, musicians, anything. So I think, you know, basically anybody could say anything like that that was capable of being a creative person.
0: Well, I mean, luckily, this is, you know, 30 years ago. Luckily, Stephen's uh, spark and uh, efficacy with regard to his songwriting has not dimmed at all. It's still great. And so is... uh, I
1: mean, he might tell you otherwise, but... I'm you know
0: Maybe so. I, I'm a fan that's kept up the whole time. I could have, you know, uh, slogged off at any point. I've heard everything that Scott's put out, and I think it's all great as well. But anyway, this session, I give a hard five to the June 23, 1992 Peel session.
1: And for me, it's a three, but I was there, and it was difficult for me to be the only drummer at what was a date that we'd look forward to so just the emotion of actually having a a play on it and and then having my bandmates sort of (laughs) have to rely on me was unique um, but it was also quite nerve-wracking and then the fact that it doesn't really sound like pavement aside from the fact that it is i think that the i think the songs themselves are are fine and i'm happy that you like them but just the experience of being there for a handful of hours was not a pleasant memory
0: which version of back roads do you prefer
1: they're both great i mean it's a great song that's too tough of a question i mean it just depends on i think it i think it depends on what mood you're in, I think it's definitely, to me, sounds more like a Silver Jews song than a Pavement song. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, keep in mind, Steven was a very important part of, obviously, entirely essential to Pavement, but also very, very important part of Silver Jews when he was in right. the band. So, Silver Jews would not have been Silver Jews regardless of what David, who obviously can't opine anymore, would say about it. I mean i mean Stephen was the only one that got invited back to make american water which to me is the best of juice record but we're not talking really? about that yeah.
0: yeah you know because the next thing that that you end up doing i have everything broken up not by release date but by recording session so peel session is june 23rd the next month the arizona record so that's uh with you and and steve right yeah so that's uh, the, obviously, the other version of Backroads. I'm, you know, unsurprisingly a really big fan of oh, David's stuff as well. I do want to talk, when we get to it, talk about Starlight Walker a little bit, because it's so, at that point, blended in with what pavement we're doing. It's tougher to separate it. The next thing I want to talk about is Brixton Academy. Just real quick, just around that time, that's a great show. That was December 14th, 92. You guys sound incredible. You're... You sound enthralled by your success and fully engaged with the material. Two songs that I want to uh, just toss out there. I don't think they were recorded at this event, but they're not on any official release that I've seen. And I think they're great songs. Teenage Piss Party and Black Walls.
1: Yeah, we just finished a lengthy tour, mostly opening for Sonic Youth. That would have been the last show of the tour. So I think, you know, there's a certain amount of relief involved. It was a big place. It was just exciting to... Um, and get it all over with. Black Walls was a song that was played many times by Pavement, and was just a cool song to throw on set lists. Um, you know, I one that I love that too, man. Yeah, one of the songs that hardcore Pavement fans were were less familiar with. um There was quite a few songs like that were sort of made in between records on live tours.
0: That one, particularly, I felt like I would have loved this, a studio version of that. It's cool. Yeah. So the next thing is two days later there was a second peel session, December sixteenth, ninety two. We have rain ammunition, drunks with guns, Ed Ames, and the list of dorms. This to me is not quite as good as the first one. It feels just a touch more like a stopgap release, but that-
1: probably only because secret knowledge of back rows isn't on it. I mean I give it a three yeah. also. Um, it was I, the I same think a four thing. Gary Gary wasn't on it,
0: right? Right, and dr- my favorite is Drunks with Guns. I think that's the best one. Drunks with Guns were a, a band
1: from St. Louis that we all loved, and we were just uh. essentially threw something together to uh, fill the space. I mean, it, that was completely yeah. made up on the spot.
0: <laughs> well, it's a great song. It's a great song, regardless of that. But especially knowing that, that's it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I give it four stars, so I like it a little bit more than you. Then one that you mentioned, and it's funny, Greenlander recorded during the watery domestic sessions. It was put on, don't remember the compilation. Was it a DGC thing?
1: Can't remember exactly what it was. It ended up on something. It ended up in one of those situations where some compilation that we've been asked to do, we didn't have anything for and steven would have to make up something for it but instead it was like oh cool we've got this greenlander song
0: first thing in my notes here is is that you on Rainstick, bob (laughs) yeah yeah that's me yeah that's me yeah again to me this is a continuation of the genius of the early band same recording session as watery domestic and but just you know watery domestic
1: was intended to be an ep so that song was just part of the cutting room tour from Watery Domestic. Eyebolt might have played on this as well.
0: You know, Stephen's prowess at being able to write a ballad, a lot of people don't talk about that, but I've really always loved his ability to write a great ballad. Stop Breathing's another great one. One of the great unmentioned songs for me is Blackout from Wowie Zowie.
1: Great. Newark Wilder's great. I mean, he's a very gifted songwriter. He can do a lot yeah. of things. So that's very, And Don't You Cry is great.
0: This song, I give a, I give a hard
1: five. It's, it's, we- it's dance is great yeah i mean greenlander for what it is i give it a four it was cool cool song
0: wow hard rating i give it a hard five this is a five stars with it with seven boners coming out of it <laughs> that's sickening it is disgusting <laughs> uh, so, uh, the, another compilation track and something where uh, it begins a very playful relationship with rem is unseen power of the picket fence what i really love about this song is a few things. Number one, Time After Time is the worst song on the record, on Reckoning. All of my friends and myself, big REM fans, you know, it's funny, Murmur is definitely, even though Reckoning is a huge record for me as well, Murmur is definitely like a, that was the big kick in the ass for me from from REM. Both of the REM songs that you guys have, this and the camera cover, they start as straight tributes. And they take a hard left, both of them. This one takes a hard left into Sherman's March, lyrical territory. And then the other one, I don't even know what the left turn is. It goes from a cover of camera into talking about offices with double-digit floors. My guess at the time was it was, you know, a sort of depressed outlook on being in the music business. I forgot
1: the cover of camera existed. And I, as you spoke of it i recalled it it's beautiful i think it was just like a splendid little accident unseen power of the picket fence was one of the first times in which you very much see the entrance of steve west and his spirit into the band mm-hmm. um he's amongst many other things Part of him is that he's a, he's a historian of the war between the states, more formally known as the Civil War. And obviously, Sherman's march and his wife's name, Andrew Sherman, everybody involved with it, with the exception of Eibold. I don't think Eibold, you know, we lived early pavement and the only people that wouldn't have would have been Eibold, who was just more punk during those mm-hmm. years, and obviously Gary who wouldn't have really even known what the hell this was about. But, you know, the other four people were massive R.E.M. REM fans concurrent with their early releases. Some of the biggest thrills of our adolescence was going to see them live after the records that you mentioned. Very easy band for us to pay tribute to because not only did they have a huge influence on us as teenagers they also open the door to just the incredible variety of bands that they would have support them whether it be dream syndicate or gang of four or wire mm-hmm. or Minuteman, yeah. just one of the top 20 influences on pavement
0: it comes through in the music i mean it certainly is more i think more as-
1: so them than the fall R.E.M. is a bigger influence on Pavement than the fall earlier. Well, I,
0: I think as time goes on in the band, that R.E.M. influence comes to the fore a lot more, or it, it's allowed to but come. You can there. hear the R.E.M.
1: influence on Water Domestic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Been a bit on Slanted. Not as much for me. There are a few songs that could have been on Fables of the Reconstruction or something. Or <laughs> Fables, yeah. In yeah. fact that I'm sure that they would have loved to have written for Fables of the... or Monster or something. At least Michael, you know, he...
0: He, he was payment man from the start, and frankly, he'd be a friggin' idiot not to be. That's it for this episode. Plenty to come. Catch us next time next week when the tour continues and the show continues, and we find out exactly what the heck happened with 1994's brilliant "Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain." We'll see you next time on Discography.